Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute in Exile. Uh, I'm David Bowes, the Executive Vice President of the Institute, and as many of you know, we're undergoing construction and expansion at Cato, so we look forward to be, being back in the new Hayek Auditorium, but for now we're pleased to have found this venue uh, very close to Cato. Um, I actually came to a George Bernard Shaw play in this theater just a few months ago before we realized we were going to need theater space nearby, so um, I enjoyed being here for that, and I'm sure they're still doing things like that here. I must say, it is embarrassing to stand next to Richard Brookheiser. He is slightly younger than I am, but he wrote his first article for National Review when he was 14. He'll tell you it was published when he was 15, but he clearly wrote it when he was 14. I was 16 and I read it, but it was a long time before I wrote an article for National Review. Uh, he went on to be senior editor of National Review, and he is the author of nine books, including Founding Father, Rediscovering George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, American, America's First Dynasty, The Adamses, uh, several others. He also wrote and hosted PBS documentaries on Washington and Hamilton. In the past week, he's spoken at Princeton University and the National Constitution Center. In the next few days, I think, he'll be speaking at James Madison's home, Montpelier, and uh, talking to John Stewart. So we're, we're honored that he chose to include us on this tour for his new book, which is called James Madison. No subtitle this time, just the simple and compelling James Madison. What we what we mostly know about Madison is that he was the principal author of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, but Richard Brookheiser discusses that achievement in chapters two and three of 11 chapters. He wants us to see much more. He wants us to see Madison as the father of politics. And when I was writing these notes, I started to put the father of American politics, but I noticed that's not what he says. He says the father of politics. Maybe America is where politics uh, first happened and therefore he's the father of all politics. But it's a reminder that people today who want to take the politics out of government may be missing something important. A lot of those people are liberals in the modern sense of the term, and perhaps a reproach that conservatives might learn from the book would be uh, a line in which uh, uh, Brookheiser says, Madison and Jefferson yearned for peace because war was expensive and vicious, War oppressed taxpayers, swelled the state, and caused panic and oppression. We've certainly seen some of that. Madison is something of a patron saint to us at the Cato Institute. His picture hung outside our auditorium until it was closed for construction, and I hope it'll be back there again. We describe the Cato Supreme Court Review as the only scholarly review to critique the court from a Madisonian perspective. And Madison has been a longstanding interest of our commenter, John Samples. The first book he did after he came to Cato was James Madison and the Future of Limited Government. He's gone on to write and edit several books on two good Madisonian topics, the continuing struggle to limit government and the value of robust political competition complete with campaign contributions, polarization, and attack ads. John Samples is the director of Cato's Center for Representative Government. He'll offer some comments in a few minutes, but first, please welcome Richard Brookheiser. Thank you, David. Uh, thank you all for coming. 
uh, I bring you greetings from New York, the home of Occupy Wall Street. If we decide we don't like the Constitution, we can just do that, right? Bad idea? Maybe, maybe so. Uh, Madison had two children. His wife, Dolly, uh, had one who became Madison's stepson. He was a man named John Payne Todd, and he became a cross to both his mother and his stepfather. But Madison's two children are much more important to us. And uh, as David said, the one we're most familiar with is the Constitution. He was called the father of the Constitution even in his own lifetime, and the title has stuck. And that's not because he got the Constitution of his dreams. Nobody did. Uh, everybody was disappointed. All of the authors of the Constitution lost something that they would have wanted. But he was called the father of the Constitution because he alone was a major player in every step of its evolution, of its creation, and of its ratification. In 1786, he and Alexander Hamilton essentially hijack a conference on interstate commerce in Annapolis, Maryland, and turn it into a call for a constitutional convention in Philadelphia the following year. When it meets in Philadelphia in May of 1787, Madison is the first out-of-town delegate to show up. He's, of course, a delegate from Virginia. He will speak more than any other delegate except Governor Morris and James Wilson. He attends every session of the Constitutional Convention. He posts himself in front of the head table where it's easiest to hear, and he records every motion and vote and all of the speeches that are given. His notes are by far the most complete set that we have. And historians have been mining them since they were published in 1840, four years after he died. Then after the Constitution goes out to the states, and the Constitution said it required nine of the 13 states to ratify it, he is a major player in two of the must-have states. He's the leader of the pro-Constitution forces in Virginia, which is the largest state in the nation. Uh, Virginia then includes what's now West Virginia and Kentucky. It is also the most populous state, was the most populous state, and certainly thought of itself as the most eminent state. And Madison, in, in arguing for the Constitution, he goes head-to-head -head with Patrick Henry, who is the most eloquent speaker in America at that time. Yet Madison beats him, and Virginia narrowly ratifies the Constitution. He's also a major player in New York, which is another must-have state because of its location. If New York does not join the Union, New England is separated from the rest of the country. And Madison's role there is to collaborate with Alexander Hamilton and John Jay in a propaganda campaign for the Constitution. It's a series of newspaper essays. New York City has five newspapers at that time, and Hamilton arranges for their essays to run in each of the five uh, uh, serially. A modern op-ed piece is about 750 words. Uh, the papers that they wrote were 2,000 words. They were producing them, them at a rate of four a week. It was a grueling, grueling pace. And it was made worse by the fact that Jay got sick early on in the process, 
and only writes five of these essays. So the burden falls on Hamilton and Madison. Hamilton writes 51, Madison writes 29, but many of the most famous are Madison's, and of course this is the Federalist Papers. And then after the Constitution is ratified in the fall of 1788, Madison runs for a seat in the first Congress in February of 1789. He is elected and he makes it his business to see that a Bill of Rights is written and passed by the first Congress. He gets the House to do this, the House prods the Senate to act, and then amendments go out to the country. Uh, this is done uh, to satisfy the critics of the Constitution. It was the main objection that people had, that the Constitution as it left Philadelphia had no Bill of Rights. Uh, Madison comes around to supporting a Bill of Rights uh, because Baptists in Virginia are telling him they need one, and he is a lifelong supporter of religious liberty. Uh, perhaps the first issue he ever took up as a young man in his early 20s was the persecution of Virginia's Baptists by the established colonial Anglican Church. This enraged James Madison. Uh, he fought religious persecution all his life, and the Baptists knew that. They knew he was their friend. So when they're unhappy about the lack of a Bill of Rights, they let him know it, and he knows they are unhappy. He also responds to his best friend in the world, who's Thomas Jefferson, who's uh, on the sidelines of this whole fight. He's in Paris in the late 1780s as our ambassador to France, but Madison keeps him briefed and informed, and Jefferson's letters back to Madison uh, all have the same shape. They're a combination of applause and encouragement, but also saying the one thing you've left out is a Bill of Rights. And he says this over and over again. Uh, a Bill of Rights is something that every people deserves from its government. And I wonder if by letter five or six, Madison might have been gritting his teeth when he comes to this Bill of Rights paragraph, because here he's been in the trenches, and Jefferson is over in Paris just, just giving him this advice. Uh, but he comes around, and he sees that a Bill of Rights will have a teaching function. It's not the word he uses, but he says that having it there in paper in black and white will cause people to take these rights seriously and it will affect their thinking and it will affect their behavior. So therefore, it's probably a good idea to have one. And so he uh, uh, makes it uh, an item on the agenda of the first Congress. Twelve amendments go out to the states. The first one, the original First Amendment, has to do with the size of congressional districts and it never passes. The original Second Amendment has to do with congressional pay and that doesn't ratify until 1992. It's the longest ratification process that any amendment has had so far. But the uh, original amendments 3 through 12 are ratified fairly rapidly, so they become amendments 1 through 10, and the fact that there's another famous set of 10 laws makes Madison, in effect, the secular Moses of the Bill of Rights. So, if Madison had been uh, hit by a carriage and killed in November of 1789, his work as father of the Constitution would have been almost complete. It was almost finished. But he had his second child to come, and that child begins to be born in 1791. 
and the reason for its birth is Alexander Hamilton. Now this is the middle of the first Washington administration. George Washington is president. Uh, Jefferson is first Secretary of State. Hamilton is first Treasury Secretary. Madison is the leading figure in the House of Representatives. And it seems like these are a team of people who have collaborated, worked together, know each other, like each other. And yet they fall apart. And one of the main reasons is Hamilton's financial program. Uh, he was a merchant's clerk in the Virgin Islands. He had a ground level vision of a world of commerce and finance uh, that very few other people in the world have. Uh, the only nations that are in that world already are Holland and Britain. He wants America to be the third. Madison is a son of a planter. He will be, inherit his father's plantation. Uh, this world seems alien to him. It seems threatening. He also has doubts about the constitutionality of one of Hamilton's important measures. I'm not going to adjudicate that, that fight this morning. What's, what's important uh, this morning in terms of Madison's career is what he does about this dispute. The first thing he does is he takes a vacation. In the summer of 1791, Madison and Jefferson leave Philadelphia, which is the capital of the country, and they go to New York City. Then they travel up the Hudson. They go to Lake George and Lake Champlain. They swing back through New England, down to Long Island, spend a few more days in New York, then go home to Philadelphia, go back to Philadelphia. And it's uh, kind of amazing to me that so many Madison and Jefferson biographers buy this cover story. Ralph Ketchum and Dumas Malone, they say, well, they really were. They were fishing and shooting squirrels. And Jefferson writes a letter to his daughter on a piece of birch bark from a canoe in Lake George. That's what they were doing. The other view comes from a New York lawyer named Robert Troop, who is a good friend of Hamilton and of Aaron Burr. And he writes Hamilton, who's working in Philadelphia at the Treasury Department, that there was every appearance of a passionate courtship between Madison, Jefferson, the Chancellor, and Aaron Burr. Now, the Chancellor is Robert Livingston, signer of the Declaration. Uh, Aaron Burr is one of New York's two senators. These are two New York politicians who have their own reasons for quarreling with Alexander Hamilton. Uh, a lot of it was patronage, but they had had their clashes with Hamilton already. So what is going on here is that the Virginians are reaching out for peers and allies in other parts of the country. If they want to slow Hamilton down or stop him or roll him back, they can't do it by themselves. They can't just do it from Virginia. They have to have allies elsewhere. So this is a first step in building a political party. In 1792, Hamilton names that party. He calls it the Republican Party. And that's the name it would have for 30 years when it switches its name to the Democratic Party, which it still has. Uh, the GOP is a separate organization. So that party, now the Democrats, originally the Republicans, is the oldest political party in the world except for the Tories in England. And Madison and Jefferson begin to build it in the summer of 1791. A second thing Madison does 
is to develop partisan media. Uh, and he does this with a newspaper in Philadelphia called the National Gazette. He finds the first editor, who's named Philip Freneau. He was a classmate of Madison's at Princeton. Now, since graduating from Princeton, Freneau has come down in the world a bit. He's been a privateer. Uh, he's done journalism. He's written poetry. So he's really not doing so well. Madison has another job for him, though, which is to edit a Republican Party newspaper. He introduces Freneau to Jefferson, who gives him a do-nothing job at the State Department. He's supposed to be a clerk translator. Uh, this will guarantee him a salary and access to State Department documents. Jefferson tells him he'll have enough free time to do anything a gentleman would wish. But what they wish him to do is to edit this newspaper. Madison uh, sells subscriptions for it. He writes letters to friends of his in Virginia saying that it will be a source of edification and enlightenment. And the first issue comes out on Halloween of 1791. And very soon, Freneau is thwacking Alexander Hamilton and soon after President Washington, who in one cabinet meeting speaks of that rascal Freneau. He was able to get under his skin. And the National Gazette is the ancestor of Fox and MSNBC and National Review and the New Republic and the Nation and every partisan and ideological outlet in American history. We had a vivid print culture in colonial times, newspapers and almanacs and pamphlets, but the National Gazette is the first party voice, first party newspaper. Now the third thing that Madison does, and it's maybe the most important, is he reflects on what he's doing and he writes about it. Uh, a number of the early founders were excellent instinctual politicians. Thomas Jefferson is a terrific natural politician. Washington is possibly even better. But Madison being Madison and being very skilled himself, he has to understand the process and think about it and write about it. And he does this in a series of essays for the National Gazette, 1791 to 92. Uh, most of these essays are bumper stickers. He's just laying out platforms, slogans for the Republican Party for the next 20 years. And he says things such as, uh, peace is good and war is bad. Um, farms are good, cities are bad. Ordinary people are good, rich people are bad. He calls them the opulent. And by that, he means Hamilton's banker cronies. Now, of course, Madison and Jefferson are rich men. But their money comes from land and from owning people, so that's good. But Hamilton's friend's money comes from the New York Stock Exchange, which already exists. It comes from selling short and buying futures and speculating and all this uh, suspicious uh, bad activity. But the most thoughtful essays in this series have to do with public opinion. And Madison is one of the first people in the English-speaking world to use that phrase. It had been coined in France 20 years before, but Madison is one of the first English speakers to pick it up. And what he means by public opinion is a continuous loop of interchange between the people and between their representatives. Uh, a man like Washington thought that, believed in popular sovereignty, but he thought it worked at election time. The people would vote, the winners would then do their jobs, 
And then at the next election, the people would pass judgment on these men, either throw them out or reelect them, or there'd be a contest between a wholly new set of contestants. Madison says no. This is 24-7. It's an ongoing loop. The people should always be expressing their opinions to their leaders. Their leaders should always be listening, responding, and also addressing the people. Uh, he says that there should be one empire of reason over the whole country. And he says that every citizen should be a sentinel over the rights of, of every other citizen. And we're surrounded by this world today. We know polls and focus groups and advertisements and all the rest of it. But Madison foresees it and helps will it into being in 1791, 1792. Now, there are some problems with the new world, and I just want to briefly talk about one that bites Madison at the beginning of the War of 1812. He asks Congress to declare war in June of 1812 against Britain. And always remember that the early republic is existing in the shadow of a world war between first revolutionary, then Napoleonic France, and most of the other powers of Europe, primarily Britain. This is a 25-year-long contest. It's as violent as World Wars I and II. It's as ideological as the Cold War. And America is a small country on the sidelines of it. And we finally enter it in 1812 because President Madison decides that nothing else has worked and Britain has been too offensive, too importunate. We have to declare war on Britain. Now, the greatest uh, general, American general, who'd emerge from this conflict is Winfield Scott. Uh, he would be the great, the, our best general between Washington and Grant. This is his first war. When he's an old man, he, he wrote memoirs, and he looked back at the officer corps in 1812. He described it as imbeciles and ignoramuses. He said the older officers were revolutionary veterans who'd given way to habits of intemperate drinking. The younger officers were swaggerers who were fit for nothing else. Now, the president is not responsible for the officer corps, but his service secretaries are. And who, who are the men that Madison had at this point? His secretary of the war was William Eustace, He'd been an army doctor in the Revolution, congressman from Massachusetts. He was overwhelmed by administration. One man described him as sitting in his office all day reading advertisements to see where he could buy 100 hats and 200 shoes. This is not what you want the Secretary of War to be doing. The Secretary of the Navy was Paul Hamilton. No relation to Alexander. He was a South Carolina politician. He had no connection to the Navy or ships of any kind and he was an alcoholic who quit work at noon. So these were the two right-hand men with which James Madison was going to go to war with one of the superpowers of the world. And indeed, the first six months of the War of 1812 are disastrous. The Navy does very well. It's, it's good enough to, um, to uh, work through the incompetence of Paul Hamilton. It has experience in the first war against the Barbary pirates, also the Quasi-War. But the army is a disaster. The British take Detroit. Uh, we can't invade across the Niagara River to Canada. The New York State Militia says, we're, we're only supposed to serve in New York. We don't have to uh, uh, go outside the borders of our state. So uh, a disaster follows disaster. 
Now, to Madison's credit, he, he knows what's gone wrong, and he gets rid of Eustace and Hamilton by the end of the year, and the two men he picks in their place are better. And the, uh, the Navy secretary is excellent, Army secretary some problems, but he's very competent and energetic. Why had he had these, the, these two uh, bad guys in the first place? It was politics. These men were good soldiers politically. They backed Madison up. He, when he got rid of a secretary of state he didn't like and there was a rift in his cabinet, they supported Madison. They abused the outgoing secretary. Uh, Paul Hamilton seems to have been an amiable man uh, despite his alcoholism. Madison liked him. Um, they could do everything except their jobs. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But it is a bad thing if your job is Secretary of the War or the Navy and the country is about to go to war against Great Britain. So Madison, uh, I think, deserves credit for being able to pull the chestnut out of the fire. Uh, he did a lot to put the chestnut in the fire in the first place, however, and I think that is due to his focus on politics. My final judgment of politics and that world is that it's better than the alternative. It seems to me the alternatives to politics are passivity or anarchy. The Constitution is the rules, politics is the game. And you, you know, you can have Mubarak or you can have uh, an Arab Spring which is just ends up in rioting. And I don't think either of those alternatives are superior to politics. So I feel we should be as grateful to Madison for his second child as we are to him for his first. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. Now we'll have some comments from John Samples. Well, I'm here to complain. I have complaints about this book, James Madison by Richard Brookheiser. I have two complaints. I have an old-fashioned complaint, and I have a new-fashioned complaint. My old-fashioned complaint is, having read this book, I am filled with envy of Richard Brookheiser's capacity for writing. Why in the world him? Why is he the writer and not me? Now, that's an old-fashioned complaint. That'll, you, that's a mortal soul, perhaps. The new-fashioned complaint, of course, is, why can't I write this well? Mr. Brookheiser has done damage to my self-esteem. Ah, but more seriously, this is a book that's, as I said to David Bowes when we were talking about it, this guy can write up a storm. And it's just really for, if you're considering buying this, it's time well spent reading this book. It's not just good for the mind. It's not a kind of medicine that you take to learn about the founders. It's a genuine pleasure to read and to, to uh, learn about James Madison and his life. I want to talk about uh, some virtues of it briefly and then maybe one small vice. The virtues I see in the book are it's not polemical. Unlike many authors, uh, Mr. Brookheiser does not have a hobby horse in this era or in general. He's not seeing James Madison as a reflection of Richard Brookheiser, who carries through on uh, his particular concerns. So I think that's a good thing. But the author does emerge from time to time. Suddenly you will notice him as you read the book at your elbow, whispering almost to you, in a kind of, a, to offer an insight as we go through Madison's life. I'll give you an example. 
early on I noticed this uh, this really which is the virtue of Mr. Brookheiser he says uh, in talking about Madison's uh, had arranged uh, an election or was working on getting the votes for uh, something and he said you know it's often surprising how often in politics people don't actually count the votes before they have the election and I, that that sort of thing is throughout the book it's unobtrusive it's very nice I like it uh, he is very good at giving you concise, clear statements of the historical context. In other words, you're going to read this book and say, so that's what the War of 1812 was all about. I've been reading about it for 30 years, and it's all just so confusing. But within a couple of pages, you finally figure out what that all was all about. And he does it continually. So there's a great synthetic uh, ability at work here. He also does not see, and maybe this is the strongest virtue of the book, he does not see the founders and the people of the founding era either as gods or as devils. And as you know, in, a, in discourse and in writing, there's a tendency in America, a great tendency to see them as demagogues, uh, demigods, gods divine and so on. Or for some, of course, also devilish uh, figures, who creditors trying to uh, bring about a constitution to protect their wealth. That's not what here is here. What's in this book is people who are great people, but people f who are recognizably people. James Madison had flaws, Thomas Jefferson, Hamilton, and so on. And they are discussed in a fair way in this book. That's a very rare thing to see, and I, I think I find it very uh, refreshing. In particular, his treatment of James Madison and slavery, I think, is very good. Anyone who has uh, read the Federalist Papers or looked at Madison is always struck by the Federalist Papers statement uh, that was aimed at the New York audience, where Madison says, you know, this three-fifths clause in the Constitution, um, it's in there. And I guess a lot of people would wonder, why didn't you just go ahead and get rid of uh, slavery? Why didn't you do something more active rather than just what we have here? And Madison's answer there is basically a political answer. It's the best we could do. Uh, Mr. Brookheiser, go, so you've always been left, or I've been left with that question, you know, why was Madison the way he was? And I thought it had something to do with his uh, peculiar economic circumstances, or not peculiar, his, he was dependent on uh, slaves. It was a large part of his wealth. And Mr. Brookheiser treats it, I think, fairly, but somewhat harshly. And, and maybe Madison deserved that, because he ultimately couldn't, um, unlike Washington, say, couldn't rouse himself uh, to do something that the country really needed, and his leadership might have made a difference, perhaps, in the 1820s and 1830s. The small vice is, and it's already been alluded to, in the age-old battle between Hamilton and Madison, I don't think uh, that Mr. Brookheiser is anywhere near hard enough on Alexander Hamilton, but maybe that's a very difficult thing to be, hard enough on him. Uh, he, he really doesn't take sides in this great battle, and uh, those people like me who are actually Madisonian partisans uh, will regret that, but other readers will find it at this kind of non-polemical uh, quality that I like so much. Now, what I want to do in, in terms of a few comments is uh, talk about the big questions that are posed by this book. 
uh, toward the end of it, really, I mean, I think, why are we interested in James Madison? Some people are interested just for a historical point of view, but I think we're interested in him because we ask the question, what can James Madison mean for us today? Uh, and, and toward the end of the book, Mr. Brookheiser addresses that. He talks in terms of two strains of Madison's legacy, and I want to add a third one in my comments today. Um, the first strain that Mr. Brookheiser identifies is constitutionalism. And indeed, Madison said in the Federalist Papers, what I think is one of the mo most uh, interesting things he said, because he spoke as an actual writer of a constitution. Madison said in the Federalist Paper, uh, quote, in framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself, unquote. So in this obliging the Constitution through checks and balances and separation of powers and enumeration of powers and enumeration of rights, uh, how is the government we have doing a constitutionalism? How is it obl been obliged to control itself? Let's just consider three or four things from our current um, political scene. The Supreme Court is now consider is deciding whether the power to regulate commerce includes the power to mandate to mandate a product purchase, that is to engage in commerce. Uh, instead of just some, in, to engage or to require people to enter into commerce rather than actually regulating commerce. And this points to what is in fact a constitutional dilemma that we have now, which is that essentially the Supreme Court has said that the economy is a big system that has all kinds of effects, and if it has any kinds of effects, then the federal government can regulate it. And if the, mandate, the health care mandate falls in the next year or so, it will still be true that a lot of that power will still exist. Uh, you can consider also James Madison's loss on the spending clause. He maintained that the Congress could only spend money for the general welfare understood as enumerated powers in, in the Constitution. Uh, for some time now, the idea is a is rather contrary one and rather more robust for government, which is that Congress decides what the wel general welfare is, and if it do and when doing that, it can spend money on those topics, and that's a, a big government uh, uh, basis, really, and not very compatible with constitutionalism, as perhaps Madison recognized early on. The Office of Legal Counsel at the Department of Justice justifies presidential actions in foreign policy now and discretionary use of force, justifies it in terms of practice, not constitutional powers. This is not recognized much, but it's very important. Madison and his, uh, everyone at the convention was trying to set up a constitution to govern political practice, not to have our society, as it were, shaped by practice, but yet the highest legal authorities in the land in this case are saying to a president, yeah, you can do it because other people did it, not because it's constitutional. And indeed, perhaps all of this could be brought together by a uh, book that was just published in the last year or so by two conservatives, or at least alleged conservatives, uh, Eric Posner and Adrian Vermeule. The subtitle of, was, of the book was The End of the Madisonian uh, constitution. 
Uh, and then it's a long argument about executive power. So at this point, I think the Madison, Madison's legacy, as he understood it and as a reasonable understanding of it, uh, should give us reason for pause. And I'll be happy in the Q&A section if you give me reasons for thinking I'm wrong about this. Um, and I'll look forward to that, actually. Uh, the second legacy that Mr. Uh, Brookheiser identifies is politics. And he, he makes the point that Madison thought well of politics as an activity. And you're very aware, I think, uh, people that would come to something like this, that most Americans today do not think of politics as being a good activity or a valuable one. Uh, and I think perhaps, and it'll be interesting to see uh, his views about that, this book, Mr. Brookhiser's book, suggests somewhat <coughs> obliquely, perhaps, that Americans might be mistaken, at least about a kind of better politics that Madison himself uh, favored. And above all, Madison was a political realist. He liked politics because he thought that it could protect Republicans, small r republics, from their uh, faults, dangers, and flaws that history had revealed. Americans today, in a sense, th seem to think that politics is not necessary. In part, I think that's because politics, in theory and in practice, is everywhere. Once you have, remember, Madison's world is one that where he thinks, and he expects everyone that ratified the Constitution thinks, that, con that politics and government is a bounded activity. There's a whole parts of the society in which uh, the politics doesn't really matter because it's off limits from democracy. It's off limits from majorities. It's off limits from politics. Today, every, perhaps part of the disquiet today is that a sense that that's not true, that everything is political. And uh, that perhaps leads also to some of the polarization. But I also want to pick up on a theme that Mr. Brookheiser mentioned in his talk, which is politics differs in another way. Uh, this whole business about public opinion that he discusses has changed in a, in a crucial way. Today, as you are no doubt aware, public opinion is measured and talked about every day because polling has advanced to that, that state and also the technology that goes with it. I think Madison thought that public opinion uh, was expressed ultimately in elections as a way to make officials responsive to the public, and that was a good thing. That's what a republic required. But what we have now is a world in which elections, in that sense, take place all the time, in which polling has made that possible. The question here, I think, is, are, have we moved, imposed by Madison, have we moved from a world of representative democracy, which was justified and eloquently defended by Madison in Federalist Number 10, to a world more of direct democracy, though albeit through polling and uh, instant uh, responsiveness to those polls. And would Madison, since he says in Federalist Number 10 that representative democracy is, does a better job of giving voice to the people than direct democracy would, has, would Madison himself in this uh, I, these, uh, transformation of public opinion, he raises the question for us that perhaps we've gone down an alley that Federalist 10 ca cautioned us about. Now, the third aspect that I want to speak about that is not mentioned explicitly as one of Madison's legacies is what I would call republicanism, with, again, with a small r. 
That is, rep republicanism was often mentioned at the Constitutional Convention as the genius of the American people, as the only form of government that suited the American people and their culture and the way they were. And that meant a government thought of as one that was free, one that would preserve liberty. And that's what Federalist Number 10 is about, about describing that kind of republic. And Americans do indeed talk a lot about liberty, and they seem to desire it, and it's considered a Trump value. After all, if you say something will bring liberty in public uh, statements, you're, that's a long way toward winning an argument. But it's also true that the people who are citizens of this republic also seem to be, wish to be free of the risk that come with liberty. And elected officials are more than happy to promise such security from risk and to add, or to not say, of course, that, or they, they do add, that the freedom from security comes with actually no cost in money, in foregone op opportunities, and other things of value. It's a free lunch. You can be free from the risks that come with liberty, and you can also be free. I think this, and you can be a citizen of a republic. This is the essence of the idea of an administrative or a therapeutic state, and I think Madison would uh, find this uh, a pretty strange outcome in terms of republicanism, that the leg the le his legacy and the founder's legacy of republicanism, in a sense, is ha having problems because it's a lack of, for lack of citizens of a republic. Um, and Madison himself may be partly to blame here because part of his legacy is that you can solve problems of republics like majority tyranny through institutional means, that you really didn't have to do it through the citizens having civic virtue or the ability to bear the cost of liberty as well as its benefits. Um, perhaps we need liberal virtues as much as we need Madison's institutions. Now, to finish, is the book worth buying? Yes, the book is worth buying. It is very much an enjoyable read, and it is a very good book. It is a book that will help people engage, I think, in a dialogue with Madison. And that's good because I think it would lead to change if enough people did it. No, not hope and change that we've been promised, but a kind of change in which you can at least think of a renaissance of the world that Madison wanted, the, the republic he wanted, a world of li individual liberty under constitutional government. Thanks.